apologize for not always remembering everybody's name. I don't get down here quite often enough to uh, remember everybody's name, but sure is good to see you all. In case anybody doesn't know it, I was raised by that man that just taught that last lesson. And uh, age has softened him up a bit, actually. You can believe it. And so, I don't know, maybe I want you to feel sorry for me. I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, it's, it's good to be here. Thankful for another opportunity to be able to come and to teach at the Winter Bible Study. Uh, I've been really blessed over the years by this, this study. and uh, It certainly caused me to do, do some digging uh, in my own studies, and that's, that's been a blessing to me as well. And so, I uh, appreciate your prayers tonight while I try to present the lesson that uh, has been assigned to me. Uh, of course, the, uh, the overall theme is major thoughts from the minor prophets. And the lesson which I've been assigned is Malachi, question and answer time. Uh, and so, I've got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to do my best. You bear with me. Uh, the book is, we'll just say that it's written by the prophet named Malachi. Some people question whether or not that was his name. Uh, there's not any other information given about him in the scriptures. Uh, his name means my messenger. Uh, and I'm satisfied that that's what the prophet's name was. Good enough for me. Uh, but nonetheless, we know that Malachi is uh, placed as the final book of the Old Testament uh, scriptures. And I think that is accurately placed. Based on the context of what we read, uh, Malachi was most likely a prophet during the time of Nehemiah, the way that Haggai and Zechariah were during the time of Ezra and Zerubbabel. Uh, we could roughly date the book around 440 B.C., perhaps a little bit after that. Uh, and so he was, in fact, the final prophet to, the, uh, to God's chosen people uh, in the Old Testament time. Uh, we know that at least so much uh, that they were under Persian rule at that time, based on the fact uh, that the word governor in chapter 1 and verse 8 is the Persian word for governor, which helps us to understand that it happened during the time that uh, the Persians had taken over from the, the Babylonians. And... Most likely, Artaxerxes was the, the ruler at that time, uh, at the close of the Old Testament. The book's written in a bit of a unique uh, style for what we find oftentimes in the Old Testament. It's written in a question and answer style, and naturally that's the, uh, na the, the title that I've been given, question and answer time. It's called dialectic style, and it's really quite effective because it causes the hearers to engage in the message that's being spoken. You can't really attend to it passively. Uh, and what you find in the way that this is laid out, generally speaking, is that God will make, through the prophet, a definitive doctrinal statement. The people will rebut the statement that God makes, and God will then rebut their rebuttal with a very authoritative, uh, longer statement on that doctrine that he makes. That's the general uh, method that's used. Uh, and as I've read, it seems to be a method that the Jewish people adopted and used for centuries after that. Now, beginning with uh, Cyrus, uh, we know, and he was prophesied about, uh, he was the, the uh, Persian ruler that was fairly tolerant to the people of Israel, and he allowed them to, uh, the people of Judah to go back and to rebuild their homeland. And God was certainly in that. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind about it. In fact, the man was prophesied by name uh, in the Old Testament, which is, to me, just a, a very fascinating uh, occurrence. Uh, the Jews uh, who desired to return, they, they did return, they rebuilt much of their land and their religion, uh, but 
had they really learned the lessons from the exile period. And that's what we, we deal with in the book of Malachi. Their hearts were wandering from God. As I listened to Dad's lesson, I thought it's just interesting the way that the Lord pieces things together, uh, because hopefully some of the things I say will fill in some of the gaps uh, in what he said. Uh, they were, again, their hearts were wandering from God. They were divorcing their wives in exchange for marriages to women of strange gods. Um, they had rebuilt their temple, as we know, but their worship was suffering horribly. Uh, they had rebuilt their walls uh, and their homes, but much of the land was undoubtedly still in ruin. And they had a long history, these people did, of judging the blessings of God upon them according to their material or their national prosperity. Uh, and they weren't seeing it as they had before. The, and the kingdom never would return to what it had been under the United Monarchy. And uh, that, I think, began to eat at them. And they became disillusioned with God. Uh, and they developed a bit of an uh, arrogant attitude, kind of what you might see in a, a teenager. Uh, and they began to talk back to God with more arrogance uh, than they had before. And uh, that's what we find in the book of Malachi. They were robbing God of what was due to him. Uh, and the... the the book itself, it's relevant, the relevance of this book extends far beyond, though, as, as we've heard, far beyond what just those people were going through, and it's ripe with lessons for us today and has been for Christian people throughout the ages. And so hopefully we'll be able to bring some of that out today. Now I want to get you just a little idea about how I approach this lesson. Uh, my wife uh, is a teacher. She teaches at the Miller Academy, which is our homeschool. Uh, and several years ago, she decided we'd do a, a bird study. Uh, we're going to study birds. It was really interesting. I loved it. Uh, so we got some binoculars, you know, for the kids and, and for me, mostly. And uh, some of them had several different zoom features. And, of course, the goal is to be able to zoom in with the, to the greatest degree that you can on the bird that you're looking at and see the greatest detail, uh, the colors and all the things that you can, uh, you can figure out from that. But what you learn really quickly is you can't start on the most zoomed-in position. You're not going to be able to get that bird in your sights if you do that. So you've got to start with it zoomed back, get the bird well in your sights, and then you can zoom in and get a more detailed picture or detailed view of what you're looking at. And that was how I looked at this lesson. I wanted to start with a bit more of a zoomed-out picture, looking at the exile period uh, in a broader view, and then hopefully being able to zoom in a little bit closer onto the book of Malachi, and the things that were happening there. And so I want to begin by talking for just a moment about God's plan uh, for Judah during the exile period. And let me say this, uh, since we've heard the lesson that we did tonight. Uh, the exile period, as, as my dad already stated clearly, was absolutely a result of their sin, and it was a punishment for their sin. But God doesn't forget his purposes even in the midst of our punishment. And he has purposes for us, even in the midst of our punishment. And he had very distinct purposes for Judah during this period of punishment that they were going to go through. And Jeremiah speaks about that in the 29th chapter that I have recorded here on the outline. Uh, it says, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word uh, unto you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, the thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. And so God had a purpose for them, and it's really important, I think, that we, we try to grab a hold of that and see that. 
I don't know how much of that they understood in that time. Uh, I, 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 don't, I really don't know, but, but it's, it was critically important. The captivity under Babylon and Persia was a time of, of great refining. Uh, and Isaiah speaks about the furnace of affliction in his writing, and that's what they did. They went through the furnace of affliction. Uh, it was, it, it was a, a great time of difficulty and suffering. Uh, a lot of the things that, that they had known were taken from them, uh, and they suffered. But what came ultimately as a result of that was that those who passed through that fire uh, would be made pure in heart, and subjects that were fit or prepared for what was coming and what God was ultimately trying to accomplish. You've got to remember in all of this that Israel was a vehicle. God was trying to use them for a very specific purpose, and that was to bring His Son into the world. And the closer that we get to the close of the Old Testament, the closer we're getting to the fulfillment of that purpose. And so the more important that it becomes that these auxiliary things be shed. Uh, and these things that they've held to for so long, they begin to fall away, and we begin to see what was really underneath what God was really trying to bring out of them. And so it was a time in which their religion would become much less national uh, and much more individual with the focus shifting from the outward worship to a worship from the heart. Uh, They would have to learn how to worship Jehovah apart from their ancestral homeland. And that was what they'd known. And you read the 137th Psalm, that's what it's about. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's songs? How shall we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? Uh, And so to worship God apart from the temple and to worship God apart from Jerusalem was a very unusual idea to them, and they didn't understand how to do that. And so they were going to have to learn how to worship Him in a place that was uncomfortable for them and in a place that was even difficult and caused suffering for them. Uh, Temple worship was no longer going to be possible uh, for them, not in the way that it had been. Uh, And so it was going to be important for them to begin to worship God in a a sort of new fashion, in a sort of new way than what they had done before. Uh, And we see in Zechariah, he says, who's despised the day of small things? It was certainly during this time they began, uh, you know, there would be small pockets of Jews in the different provinces. And so they would have to meet together in these smaller gatherings, in these smaller groups. And it was likely from this and during the interbiblical period that the synagogues that we read about in the New Testament were formed. Uh, we, we know that uh, according to the conversation that Jesus had with the, the woman at the well, uh, that this was a part of his design. This was a part of his intention. Uh, she said there, uh, I'll just read it. He says, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. And so it wasn't about the location. That was the point. Uh, And God was trying to get that across their minds. He knew what was coming. He he knew what He was preparing them for. Uh, He knew that they were going to be spread throughout the land. Uh, and that the time was going to come in which they were going to have to evangelize the world. Now, they, during this time, they found a new appreciation for the law of Moses. Uh, and we can see that even in the account I record here in Nehemiah, where that Ezra the scribe got up and he read the law before all the people, uh, all that could hear with understanding. And they listened to him for hours on end. Uh, and so reading of the law became a very important part of their worship, uh, particularly during these exile years. 
And we can see it even in the New Testament when it, the time came for Jesus to stand up in the temple and to read. Uh, and boy, what it must have been like to be you know, in, in, that, in that setting when you, you heard him sit down and say, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. And so that became an important part of their, their worship. And the individual responsibility would begin to take center stage more than ever before in their history as, as a nation. And I don't know if there's any other Old Testament prophet that uh, had more to do with that than Ezekiel did. He put a great deal of emphasis on the individual's responsibility uh, and took it away from the, the focus away so much from the national way of thinking. And you can see there in the verse that I, I read, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither the father the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So individual responsibility and accountability became very important to them during that time. And one other thing that it accomplished, and there's a lot of other things that I'm not, that this list is in no way exhaustive, uh, was that it created a dispersion of Jews uh, during this period. And that would position God's chosen people throughout the world. Whenever Cyrus let, let them come back and rebuild their temple, they did not all come back. Uh, and some of them didn't come back because they had been taken away with the wealth of Babylon and uh, the opportunities and the enterprises that awaited them there. Uh, and some of them didn't come back for other reasons, I'm sure. But what it did, no doubt, was it, it positioned them throughout the world. And that's critically important as we go forward in the history of time and we see what God was trying to ultimately do. And so in the midst of the punishment uh, of the exile period, God was trying to accomplish these bigger purposes. And so uh, it's basically, you know, it's as he's whittling them down to a sharper point. Uh, and he's getting rid of all the excess so that he can bring them down to this moment in time uh, where they will really accomplish what he wants for them to accomplish. Now, Malachi picks up roughly 100 years or so after that they make the return. We see the spiritual condition of the people uh, after that they have come back. And it reminds me a lot of reading the, uh, the book of Revelation, uh, the condition of the churches that John spoke about uh, after a short little while of time had passed. You know, we read about them in Acts, and we read about them in Paul's letters on his missionary journeys, and they're very promising and very hopeful. And then you read about how far they had fallen by the time that John is given the revelation there on Patmos. Uh, and that is a good reminder to us of how quickly we can uh, fall and spiritually degrade if we're not very mindful of certain things. And so with that being said, we'll get to the question and answer time aspect of the lesson. Uh, God begins in his speech to them through the prophet Malachi by expressing his love. Uh, and I, I don't think that that's in any way unintentional. God doesn't do anything without intention. Uh, and I think it was very important because it sets forth his love at the beginning, which prepares them, I think, for the rebuke that's going to follow. And it absolutely does follow. Malachi 1, 1 through 5 says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet you say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Uh, was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down. They shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. And so he's, again, beginning to set forth first his love. 
Uh, and I, we're reminded of the verse there in Revelation chapter 3 where it says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore, and repent. And so God's love calls us to repentance if we hear it as we should and we feel it as we should. Uh, his love is, of course, the fountain from which all other blessings can flow uh, and should flow. It begins there. Uh, and so uh, I'll, I'll pass on the reading of the Scripture there. His love is what sustains us in every trial uh, and calls us back to Him every time that we wander. His love has been demonstrated in so many ways, the greatest, of course, which is salvation. Uh, Jeremiah 31 and 3 says, The Lord hath appeared uh, of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Uh, and so God uses his love for us to draw him back, to draw us back to him. And that's what he was trying to do here uh, for uh, Judah in this period of, of time where they were wandering so far from him. Let me draw you back. Let me remind you. Uh, that I love you. Let me remind you that I love you by the fact that I have chosen you. Uh, and that's what he means when he says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. I don't think God uh, genuinely hates anybody the way that we think of hate, but uh, in comparison to what I have uh, done for you, in comparison of my blessings to you uh, and the tearing down that I have done for Esau, that is a demonstration of my love for you. And do we not have that among us? Can we not look at the great many ways that God has blessed us as individuals and as churches and as people and see that He has chosen us and called us by His love? Uh, and that is proof to us uh, that He loves us indeed. It is a great insult, and boy, did they insult God. Uh, you know, can you imagine saying that? I can't imagine saying that back to God. Where have you loved? How have you shown your love to me, God? Uh, and that's what they did. Uh, and so they, it, it's a great insult to a perfect, almighty, loving God to question His love for us. A love that was proven by so great a sacrifice, as it says in Romans 5.8, God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, and so that was the first uh, sort of thing that was addressed. Secondly, He speaks about His honor. Uh, and He says there in, in verse 6, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If I then be a father, where is mine honor? If I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts? O priests that despise my name, and you say, wherein have we despised thy name? Uh, and so he, he was saying very plainly, listen, I am worthy of honor. Give me your honor and show me your honor by your works. Uh, show me that by, by giving me the reverence that is due to me. And so they had forgotten their place. Uh, and the best way for us to know our place is to remember the space that he occupies in the universe and in our very existence. As Paul reminded us in the Sermon on Mars Hill, He's made the world and all things therein. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Uh, and He dwells not in temple made with hands, neither is worshipped by men's hands as though He needed anything. Seeing He gives to all life and breath and all things, everything that we have, we have by the grace of God. And that's it. Uh, and that ought to help us find our proper place in this dynamic of giving God the proper reverence and honor that He's worthy of. Uh, without Him, you know, as Paul, Paul said, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Uh, and when we really feel that way and embrace it in our heart, when we see how small that we really are, then we can really see how magnified our God is and we can honor Him as He deserves to be honored. And so reverence for God is certainly a prerequisite to receiving His benefit. Uh, as Solomon said, that, that's the conclusion of the whole matter, to fear God and to keep His commandments. And 
Uh, as the Lord said, why do you call me Lord and do not the things which I say? Uh, certainly, if you see me as Lord and think of me as Lord, you'll do the things that I've commanded you to do. And so simple obedience uh, needs to come first. And simple obedience is a display of honor and reverence to the one that we're obeying. Uh, our ability to, to serve others also comes into this, this, this factor. It's really hard uh, to be of much of a help to others if we ourselves are always in need of repentance. Uh, and that was the, the case for them here. Uh, and Jesus gave us the greatest example that anybody could give us in this, in the 13th chapter of John, uh, whenever that he who was master, he who was the creator of heaven and earth, he who by him were all things made that was made, whenever that he bowed down on his feet and he washed the dirt off of his apostles' feet, did he not give us the greatest example of what it means to serve others? Uh, and, to, and if we're going uh, to be able to help this world that we live in, we're certainly going to have to get that master-servant uh, relationship into its proper perspective and honor God as He's worthy of being honored. Now, they had polluted the sacrifices. That's the next thing that they did. Malachi 1, 7, and 8 says, You offered polluted bread upon mine altar, and you say, Wherein have we polluted thee? Uh, in that you say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? Boy, I just love the way God speaks to them in this, in this book. He lays it out. You know, He just says, listen, you try, you try treating your governor the way you're treating me, and you see how that work out for you. I've thought about that many times in, in certain contexts, you know. Imagine if, people, imagine if church members' attendance at their job was the same as it is at church. They wouldn't have a job anymore. You can't show up for one of five shifts in a given week and expect to keep your job, can you? Uh, and, and that's how we treat God. Uh, and he goes on and he says here in the 14th verse, he says, For I am a great king. Uh, and we need to remember that. He is a great king. And he's worthy of our, our living sacrifice that Paul said was our reasonable service. Uh, and oftentimes, we treat God worse than we would treat our governor. We treat God worse than we would treat our employer. Uh, and we ought to be ashamed of ourselves when we do that. Uh, and that rebuke just needs to settle in a little bit and have its place and work, work in us. A great king demands obedience and adherence to his pattern and is worthy of it. Uh, and you know, Hebrews, in the 8th chapter, we realize, I'm going to just uh, not read all that, but we realize how important that God's patterns that he establishes really are. Uh, and he does everything with a purpose. He is a stickler for details, particularly in the Old Testament. He had a reason for why he did things. And the sacrifices that they were making were representative of the greatest sacrifice that ever would be made, Jesus Christ, the one that whenever John saw him coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And if those lambs that they were offering in the day of Malachi were representative of the Lamb of God, then no wonder that he was not willing to accept their blind uh, and their lame and their leftover uh, animals that they didn't want anything to do with themselves. They, he, he wanted only the best brought forth because they were intended to represent that great and ultimate sacrifice that would be made in Jesus Christ. And how much more important yeah, did it become the closer that they got to that moment in time? Maintain the purity, you know, a, a, as a vehicle... Uh, to bring Christ into this world, which is what Israel was, boy, they were battered and bruised, and they were just holding on by a thread down here at the end. 
And it's amazing to me, it, just, it, it shows the providence and the nature of God that they, they even managed to make it. They didn't do it on their own, that's for sure. And so they needed often reminding uh, of certain things. And so uh, the, the sacrifices, as I said, were polluted, and God was not at all pleased with that. Moving along, it, this, uh, we'll, we'll go to the priesthood. Now, he calls out the priest quite specifically in this. Uh, and in Malachi 2, it says, And now... O ye priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not uh, hear and if you will not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name, uh, and, and pay attention to that part where he says, if you will not lay it to heart. That's what was really the problem. It was a heart problem. And when we have sin problem among us, folks, it's a heart problem that we really have. Uh, we've got to figure out what's going on down in here. You're not going to be able to figure it out on your own. You've got to get with God. Say, Lord, search me. Uh, and that's the, what the nature of this question and answer format does. Is it causes us to go before God and say, Lord, search me and see what wicked way there is in me. And help me to, to rid myself of that in my life. And so he says, if you do not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I've cursed them already because you do not lay it to heart. That was the real problem. Uh, behold, I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces. This is God speaking. I will uh, even the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it. And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, our leaders must be held to a higher level of accountability. He was holding them to a high level of accountability here as the priests. Uh, and the same is true today. Uh, and as it says, Paul said to Timothy, he spoke about that sort of thing often. He said, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Why should they be counted worthy of double honor? Because they've been given a, a position uh, of leadership among God's people as under shepherds. And there's a great responsibility, and there also comes a great accountability with that. When leaders fail, the common man and woman is sure to suffer. That's the way that it is. Uh, and so we need to be mindful of that. That's why Paul told Timothy as well, Take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Uh, and so there's a lot of people that, uh, are, that, that we have an influence over and that our shortcomings and our sins and our failures will affect if we're not careful. Positions of leadership are, are vulnerable to abuse, and such was the case here. And we need to be mindful of that as well. Uh, Peter instructed us to feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. Just the way that Jesus was an example to those apostles when He bowed down and washed the dirt off of their feet. That's how that we have to approach this. Uh, and when we do... Uh, we'll still steer clear of a lot of issues. Now, divorce was a problem among them. Uh, and they were leaving the, the wives of their youth for the daughters of strange gods. Malachi 2, uh, verses 10, 11, and then 16 says, Have we not all one Father? Uh, hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, every man against his brother, by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth 
putting away, that is divorce. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. And that's what God said about it. He said, this is treacherous what you're doing. Uh, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. There is little need for me to make much of an effort to connect the, the sin of divorce in that time to the sin of divorce in our day. It's all around us. It's not difficult to see. Let me tell you, God still hates the thing put away. God still hates divorce. It was never His intention. Not from the beginning. Uh, it was not His intention from the beginning. It was His intention that God would give to the man a woman and to the woman a man and that that union would be a lifelong union that would be bound up in Christ. Uh, and that's still what He intends uh, today. And so that's what Jesus said when they came to Him in the 19th chapter of Matthew. I'll let you read that for yourself. They were exchanging the true blessings that come uh, from the wives of their youth for the temporal gain that it brought them, and it was a losing proposition by any standard, and it still is today. Uh, cherish the wife of your youth. And I tell you, she only gets better with time. You know, that, that's just the way that it is. And, and the more that you invest in that, the more that you get out of that relationship. Uh, and so hang on. You know, it just absolutely infuriates me to hear people say, well, I don't love them anymore. And I say, well, you know what? That's what you promised to do. So figure out how to do it. Love them. You know, love is something that we've got to practice and work on and uh, we've got to act it out in our life. It's not just simply an emotion. Yes, we can feel love uh, and we can experience it in that way, but it's something that must be done. Uh, and we are oftentimes far too selfish. Uh, and so, uh, as we see here in these verses from Proverbs, that thy fa it says, let thy fountain be blessed, rejoice with the wife of thy youth. And uh, when you do that, you found yourself a virtuous woman, as it's talked about in the 31st chapter of Proverbs. God consider it a treachery to break this sacred vow, and he still does. Uh, and so, uh, I'll move along. They were robbing God. They were robbing God of tithes and offerings. Uh, in Malachi 3, it says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with the curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Listen, when a man robs God, he robs himself. It's that simple. You can't outgive God, and you don't have anything anyway. Everything that we have is given to us by God. Every gift, as James taught us, that we have in our life comes down from above. And so who are we to think that, that, we, that it belongs to us and that it's ours at all? All that we are are stewards over what God's given us. That's all that we are. Uh, and we're supposed to be good stewards over it. And so if we hold back, boy, that's not going to go well. Read about Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. It didn't go good for them when they held back, did it? Uh, and it's not going to go well for any of us. And so when a man robs God, he, he robs himself. Uh, we have nothing on earth that was not supplied by heaven. We're stewards over God's gifts. And we will reap according to how we sow and according to the motivation behind our generosity. And I'll let you read those verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, if you sow sparingly, you can expect to reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you can expect to reap bountifully. I would like to reap bountifully. And therefore, the Scripture teaches me that I ought to sow bountifully. And I've never been, I've never been able to outgive God. Uh, and I don't want to go much into detail, but listen, it said tithes and offerings. And I see them as two different things. Uh, you know, and, and well, I'm not going to get into New Testament tithing. 
It's just not time for it. They spoke stout words uh, against God. Uh, they, they just spoke out against Him. I can't imagine speaking to God in that way, just to be honest. We've got plenty of sin among us, as we've already heard about it. I've got plenty uh, in my own mind and heart to figure out and to deal with and uh, to repent of. Uh, but, boy, I just can't imagine speaking directly to God in the way that they did. Uh, it says in the third chapter, verse 13 through 15, Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet you say, What have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept His ordinance, and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? Boy, how selfish of a statement to make. If God gives me nothing in my life, He still deserves everything from me. If God takes everything from me in my life, I hope and pray I'll be able to say what Job did. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And though He slay me, yet will I trust in Him. Uh, he is the maker of heaven and earth, and my very, the very breath that I draw in and out of my lungs, I do so because He allows me to do it, and He wills it, me to, to do that. He gives it to me. And so, regardless of what He gives uh, or doesn't give to me, who am I to speak against the God of heaven? And uh, verse 15 says, And now we call the proud happy, yea, and they that work wickedness are set up, yea, they that tempt God are even... Deliver. It's a foolish thing to speak against the one who fashioned our very tongues, isn't it? Boy, we do it sometimes. It reminds me of uh, when you correct your child, and then they decide to talk back and uh, tell you, you know, how they weren't wrong. How foolish. And how foolish were we when we did it ourselves? Now, there were, contained in Malachi, some beautiful promises that were to come. And I think I said this in my intro, but maybe didn't mention it tonight, is that it really bridges the failures that they're going through and the issues they're going through with the hope that was coming. And boy, we need some hope, don't we? Uh, we need hope, and we need to hold on to hope. Uh, a lot of times, that's what we have to motivate us, to drive us forward. And so they had some promises given to them that were to come. One of the promises was mentioned about the Gentiles that were going to come in the first chapter, verse 10 and 11. Uh, I'll just read the 11th verse. It says, For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. These people had suffered a lot at the hands of the Gentiles. And I'm sure that it was difficult for them to hear that from time to time. But boy, God didn't hold back from telling them. And what a reminder, hey, listen, you straighten up or else I'm going to them. Uh, and, you know, God, sometimes He may need to slap us across the face that way. You straighten up or else I'll find me a people, uh, you know, whether it's in Africa or whether it's in Pakistan or wherever that is. I'll find me a people that will serve me in sincerity and truth because when I make my return, I will find faith on this earth. I would like for it to be here and among us. Uh, but we need to be warned and be mindful of that. He warned them about judgment that was coming. Boy, being warned about judgment has a great way of motivating us, doesn't it? Listen, we're not staying here. He's coming back. And when He does, He's going to fold up this world like a garment and put it away. Are you ready? And are you living your lives in such a way that you would be okay with Him coming back right now and sitting down in your living room saying, it's time to go? Are, are we living that way? Or would we say, oh man, the Lord's coming back. i got some things to get in order. And so future judgment and our interest in being on the right side of it 
can be a great motivator to serve God in sincerity and truth. There was a bigger picture to be considered here, and the people needed to understand that they were placed here for such a time as this, uh, that although they may be small cog, they were placed within a great wheel, and they needed to play their part well. And that's what we are. We're a small cog, but there's a bigger picture going on here. Now, he, he, they, I don't know if they understood that Malachi was going to be the last prophet that they would hear from or not in the Old Testament account. But just in case, you know, when the long, dark years that were in front of them were about to come, they could go back to this, and they could say, hey, remember what Malachi told us. There's going to be one more prophet that's going to come. Malachi 4, 5, and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And they had that promise to hold on to. Uh, and they may not have been aware of it, as I said, but you know, there'd be a lot of generations that would follow that would never hear from a prophet. Uh, and you, know, even in, you read even in the book of Maccabees, and as, as much as they did, and I'm not suggesting that as a scriptural reading, it's just interesting and historical, uh, but you know, whenever that they cleaned out the, the uh, desecration of the, the temple that uh, Antiochus Epiphanes had done there, and they set the stones outside, they didn't know what to do with them. And so they said, well, I guess we'll sit them here and we'll wait until some prophet comes along and tells us what to do with them. You know, so generations lived uh, after them that didn't hear from a prophet, but they had the promise of one that was going to come in the spirit of Elijah, and that's what, the way that John came. In the spirit of Elijah, he had a zeal like Elijah had, uh, and he was a little bit odd the way that Elijah was a little bit odd. He lived out in the wilderness, uh, and, you know, Elijah, of course, he wasn't unaccustomed to that, laying by the brook, Sheriff, waiting for the ravens to bring him lunch and dinner and, and drink the water till it dried up. Uh, and John came, and he indeed turned the hearts of many back to God and made ready for our Savior a people, uh, a people that were refined, a people that had been through the furnace of affliction, a people that down through the ages of all of these things, they had remained faithful to the promises. And uh, then, of course, the greatest of all the promises that were made was that the messenger of the covenant was going to come. Jesus Christ the righteous. Malachi 3 and 1 says, Behold, I'll send my messenger, he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye shall delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith Lord of hosts. And as sudden as the arrival of Jesus may have seemed to the world, it was in no way sudden to God. He had waited for the fullness of time to come, the moment in human history in which he uh, had long before planned for his dear son to arrive, Jesus Christ took upon himself the likeness of our sinful flesh at the exact moment in time in which he would have the greatest impact on the world. That's how I view it. At the time in which many would delight in him. And uh, I, I have a section here which I've got about two minutes to share with you, and that's not going to be enough time. But uh, the book of Malachi has a, a bit of an abrupt ending to it. At least that's how it, it feels to me when I get to the end. And what follows, as we know, being the final book of the Old, Old Testament, I felt that it might be somewhat useful to talk just a minute or two about uh, what happened after. It's referred to sometimes as 400 years of silence, and I put sort of there on my lesson because it was absolutely 400 years, roughly, a little bit more than that, of silence in terms of God sharing a prophetic message with the people. But there was in, there was in no way a lack of activity by God uh, during that time period. It, it's a marvelous time period, and you ought to read and study about it if you have. Uh, it's a 
It's a time in which you can really see the providential nature of God working. And it's not, a lot of the things that were done during this time period were not done by God's people. They were done for His people to preserve them in the greater picture of the world that was going on around them. And they, of course, had Daniel's prophecy, uh, and they held to it. And Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream was very dear to them, uh, you know, with the, the head of gold and uh, the chest of silver and the arms of silver and the, uh, the, the belly and the thighs of, of, of brass and the legs of iron and uh, the feet of, uh, of, of part iron and part clay. But we, we, we know basically now what, you know what Daniel's vision was about. And during the time of Babylon, it was the head of gold. You know, a lot of the Jews uh, obtained a lot of wealth during that time. And they, the dispersion was, was, was set. You know, God, they were able to stay in these places and thrive in these different places. And that was not without purpose. Uh, and around 540 B.C., the Persians would overtake Babylon. We've talked about that. They were the silver... Uh, breast and the arms, uh, Cyrus, prophesied in Scripture by name, would not only allow but aid the Jews in their return to their homeland and the repair of the temple and customs, thus preserving the Jews and religion, even if by threat. On more than one occasion, the Persians were unable to overtake the comparatively small nation of Greece. Uh, and boy, didn't you see God's providence in that. Had they overtaken Greece, what would have happened? Well, the world would have been covered with Persian customs, and it wouldn't be anything like we know today. So much different. God prevented that from happening. And not only did He prevent it from happening, uh, then He caused those Grecians to rise up and to overtake Persia. And Alexander the Great in 332 B.C. would uh, overtake Persia and much of the world, advancing as far as India. He took control of Egypt, the city in the, where the city of Alexandria would be named after him. Uh, and the Greeks were the belly and the thighs of brass in Daniel's vision. And Alexander was a very interesting figure. And I'm over time, so you just got to bear with me for a couple more minutes. Uh, but, you know, there's a, there's a legend, and I don't know if it's true or not, but there's a legend that as Alexander passed by Palestine, that the priest came out to meet him, uh, and that they told him, based on Daniel's vision, that he was going to overtake the world. Uh, and so he was pretty, pretty easy going on them. Uh, but after he died, the kingdom was split uh, among four of his governors, and the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, if I'm pronouncing them correctly, they were the two that the Jewish people had the most to do with. Uh, and um, the, the, under the Ptolemies, there was relative peace, but under the Seleucids, they, they endured great difficulty. Now, I'll just skip along to this. One of, the, one of the most fascinating things to me during this time period happened around 250 B.C. Uh, whenever the Greeks conquered the world, they brought with them Hellenism. That was their way of life. Uh, and they had this language, uh, Koine Greek. You've heard of it, no doubt. It, it is, as far as I can tell, it's the closest language that ever came to undoing the confusion of Babel that ever existed. And God, that's the very language that God chose for Himself to give us the New Testament in. And that's amazing to me. Uh, and in 250 B.C., in the city of Alexandria, the library there, they translated their, their Hebrew Old Testament Scriptures into the Greek language. And God used that. Now you had Jews that were spread by their dispersion all throughout the world who had the Word of God in the Greek language which the whole world spoke. Everybody could now know what it was that Jehovah God had been saying to His people throughout the ages. And that was very much used by God uh, by the time the New Testament events come around. And I've already mentioned something about the Maccabees, but 
I don't know what you think about the Maccabees or not. It's interesting. I do know this. God used them to prevent Antiochus Epiphanes from completely annihilating that nation and preserved them uh, and kept them afloat, even if just barely, barely so, it kept them afloat. And so God used these events. And of course, around 146 B.C., Rome would become the dominant world power. Uh, and they were the legs and the feet of iron mixed with clay. But, you know, all of these, in Daniel's interpretation and in, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, they were in human form. And they were in human form because they were human-made governments. That's what they were. And because of it, they were subject to the same imperfections that we as men are subject to. And they were all temporary, and they were all going to fail. And he said, but I see another one. I see another kingdom. And this kingdom is not like the others. It's not in human form. It's being cut out by the hand of God in stone. Uh, and this is the kingdom that he had been trying to bring them to. The, the point that he'd been trying to bring them through where their material kingdom would transition into the spiritual New Testament church kingdom. And that kingdom would overtake all the others. Destroy them. And it may have started out as a little stone, but boy, it gained some steam. And before you knew it, it became a mountain. And that's what the Lord was trying to do through all that. And I don't think I did a very good job explaining it, but I hope that there was something in that that stood out to you. It was upon this kingdom uh, during the Roman rule that the Son of Righteousness would arise and welcome all people who'd be obedient to His decrees. It would arise in the time of that fourth kingdom, Rome, and it would be an everlasting kingdom which would break in pieces and consume all the kingdoms of the earth. It has stood ever since. He said it would be everlasting, and he meant it. And it will stand through the final age. And of this, we can be most confident. And, uh, and maybe we ought to talk a little bit more about it from time to time. But nonetheless, that's the lesson tonight. I appreciate you letting me go over a few minutes. And uh, may God bless you. Uh, I'm so appreciative for this Bible study, and it's an honor to be part of it. God bless you.